0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time 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 for Taiwan This Week.
1: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicholas Smith of the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. And on the telephone by Taipei-based freelance journalist, Ralph Jennings.
0: Good evening, Gavin.
1: Tonight we'll be discussing concerns here in Taiwan over a new infection illness in the Chinese city of Wuhan, the opening of the new and improved Suhua Highway to traffic and buses, more news about the possible future of Far Eastern air transport, a new law requiring food delivery companies to take out insurance for their couriers, and a new and upgraded u-bike bicycle rental service being set to begin trials in Taipei next week. But we'll begin of course with the elections, which unless you've been living in a baked bean can for the past eight months or so you'll be fully aware are taking place tomorrow. Now we've had the talking heads on the show over the past months, too many months as far as I'm concerned, chatting about their take on the issues, the policies, the campaigns and the controversy. But today we'll be looking at how the foreign press has been covering the election as both Nicola and Ralph work for overseas publications. So Ralph, I mean if, when, when, you get, when you get emails from your publishers in America or elsewhere saying there's an election, what's happened? Happening. What are they looking for? Obviously, compared with the local press, you don't need to include a lot of the nitty-gritty that the local press would.
0: What they're looking for comes down to who their audience is, and you you hit it right on there, which is the audience is not from here. The audience is from the West in a lot of cases. Sometimes from Japan, sometimes from other parts of the world. They don't know much about Taiwan. Um, and as one of my editors pointed out when the campaign started, and I pitched the story. He just said no. You know, it's a Taiwan is small. It's early. Um, nobody knows the names of the candidates. Nobody really cares. This was early on, of course. Now they do care. Uh, what do they care about? They care about China because it's China's big. Um, much of the world's audience has still identify Taiwan, China as a, uh, a flashpoint, potential military flashpoint, an unresolved disputed Asia. Uh, to some extent, there's the there's the poor, helpless democracy fighting against the giant authoritarian uh, government uh, close to it. There's that story, that narrative comes up <clears throat> every year, and a lot of people around the world still like it. Um, so those are the things that get everybody going. And I think this election, uh, you can validly say this election cuts to those themes, because um, based on the interviews I've done with voters so far, um, China really matters. People are thinking about that. We've had the Hong Kong protests um, throughout, you know, almost, well, more than half 2019 until now. Um, so those themes are, are valid this year among voters. It's not just the politicians talking about them. So I think that the foreign media have, have rightly identified that as one of the themes. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I would agree totally with with all of what Ralph has said. I mean, I think really editors are looking for the bigger picture and certainly with the Hong Kong protests this year, that's um, pushed uh, the Taiwan election story up the agenda um, and made it a lot more relatable to our readers who will have been following um, what's been happening in in Hong Kong. Um, So... Generally, our editors are looking for a bit of analysis and also just kind of you know straight reporting on um, it, it, looking at Taiwan in the context of, of its ties to the US and, and to China and to why it matters from a political and st- strategic point of view. Um, and also, I, I think one of the, the great things about um, being based here as well and, and kind of being more invested in Taiwan is that the elections just give you uh, the opportunity as a journalist to show um, to showcase Taiwan um, to to your audience, uh, which you know you don't always have the opportunity to do, and and just you know to, to to demonstrate how one of the things that we've been looking at is how you know Chinese culture and democracy can coexist. It's not you know how the the Communist Party of China dictates it to be. Um, and, and just showing how Taiwan presents a dynamic alternative to, to an authoritarian police state. That's, that's been one of the kind of major themes of, of the election coverage so far as well.
1: Well, of course, something, people often say that the foreign press use certain language to describe things about Taiwan. And of course, this being election cycle, we've had the, the use of the words, the most important election ever, Ralph. I mean... Obviously, in Taiwan publications, a lot of this does words such as this don't get used, but overseas press seem to focus. It's the biggest election ever.
0: Well, I think the the, the uh, international media always reaching for the superlatives. If you can establish some somewhere in the third or fourth paragraph of your story, maybe even higher than that, that something is the most or the first or the biggest, then you can grab readers somehow. Of course, that sort of thing is the most important ever. It kind of defies. Statistical analysis—it certainly is a, a viewpoint call. I'm not sure I would agree either. Um, I think it's uh, elections are more a little more compelling when there's no incumbent. Is you just, there's um, you know you're going to have a new president. Uh, China has always been a threat. It's always out there. Um, this year we have it seems to be influencing Taiwan uh, using uh, social media. In the past there were missiles. There were um, you know relying on foreign investors, sorry, Taiwanese investors who lived in China to um, help them promote candidates who they liked over here. So, you know, it's always there. So to that extent, um, it's this the most important ever. Maybe we could argue that, I'm not sure how, but, um, you know, there it is. It's um, not statistically valid, but it's a, it's a fun comment that will probably get some attention among readers.
2: I think also you've got to remember that... Um when you're writing about taiwan we are and you're writing for a foreign publication you're competing with like other huge headlines from around the world and and with you know america's actions in um uh, assassinating a senior iranian leader um that that kind of really um puts the pressure on that you you do have to make um you do have to make it as interesting as you can within the, you know, within the, the boundaries of, of fact. Um, I I don't know if I would agree that it is the biggest election um, either, but it's still a very significant election. And especially when, uh, you know, we've been seeing for seven months now, um, kind of on the streets of Hong Kong, um, what China's authoritarian rule looks like. And Taiwan, um, as Ralph said, has, has, you know, for for decades... Um, being on the front line of of um, aggressive moves by China and the, the use of infiltration and influence operations, um, and I, I think that really kind of makes this this election a lot more relevant. And and, and people are starting to have a bit of a wake up call to, you know, Chinese expansion, what that might mean, that what that might mean for their economy or for um, the, what that might mean strategically. And and Taiwan has a lot to offer in terms of of you know, showing how to deal with those kind of challenges.
1: Right, let's move away from the issues of the foreign press and move on to how my two guests have seen this election. And, Ralph, of course, you've seen quite a few elections here. I mean, in the build-up to the election, is there anything different that's caught your eye from previous ballots? Mm,
0: what catches my eye is that um, until the last week or so, I've seen very little you know, physical campaigning. And the antidote to that would be online campaigning. A lot of what's going on does take place online now. I mean, some of the candidates themselves, including the legislative candidates, you do see rallies, of course. there have been some massive rallies. Um, and you do see trucks in the streets and so forth. But I think a lot of the the battle out there has been fought through Facebook and Line and Twitter and people's public um <coughs> Uh, Websites and so forth. So that that struck me. Um, it also struck me that the kind of the, the fever pitch got started a bit later than it has perhaps in years past. Uh, the candidates were both known uh, in the, over the summer, and then we had Terry Guo who sort of floated around, wasn't sure what he wanted to do. Eventually, left the whole scene, and then, uh, gosh, well, sometime in November, I suppose we really started to see some serious campaigning.
2: For me, it's my first um, Taiwanese election, um, and I think I, I, I've just been struck by um, how colourful the whole thing is, and that you know how um, joyful as well. In a way, I, I was I was out um, a few days ago um, on the truck that was kind of um, following Enoch Wu's uh, jeep, just going around Songshan, and people were just like smiling, waving. Um, it, it just seems it, 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 it seems to me that people are very appreciative of elections. I don't know whether um, that's because it's, Taiwan is a relatively new democracy, and, and people you know, still have that collective memory of, of martial law. Um, but I'm actually just really enjoying just the, the color of the whole thing, and also a lot of the, um, the, the merchandise just makes me laugh. I'm not sure what the bunny, the the flashing bunny ears are for, but I like them.
1: I was going to get to that. What was your favourite piece of merchandise for this election, Nicola?
2: Well, I'm still collecting my merchandise, so I I don't think I can take the final call yet. But I do like the Hangul Yu Captain America um, soft toy. That's one of my favourites at the minute. Cuddly toy? Yes.
1: Is it big, small? Can you cuddle it on the
2: sofa? (laughs) I'm not going to start cuddling on the sofa. just you me. Oh, well, we
1: won't go there. Anyway, Ralph, your favorite piece of election merchandise from this election.
0: I got to say, I haven't bought anything. I'm still waiting to run into a piece of frozen garlic. I trust you know what that means. It's the Thai, (laughs) the local language for for get elected, basically, win. And there's been, uh, you know, that phrase has caught on with a mass public, I think, since the last election when the Thai campaign was using it quite a bit. So somebody else has got to come out with like this gigantic really cold icy garlic drink or a garlic doll or something like that and no i will not hug that on the sofa
1: that's good and can i ask where will you where will you be spending election day nicola
2: i will be in taipei um more specifically in and taipei and <laughs> i will be going to some um, polling stations just to speak to people about their voting intentions um and I think probably end up in the DPP headquarters in the evening, just as the vote count comes in.
1: And Ralph, where will you be spending election day? Uh, likewise, I'll go to
0: at a, a least one polling station, probably two. I have an editor who wants me to get an early sense of the turnout. The, uh, the Thai campaign headquarters slash neighboring DPP office and, uh, you know, take a stand there and watch the results come in on TV listen to uh, her speech eventually when uh, the results are known
1: Moving on and memories of SARS were revived earlier this week when the Centers for Disease Control on Wednesday listed a mysterious disease being reported in the Chinese city of Wuhan as a Category 5 communicable disease. Now the Category 5 classification defines the virus as an emerging communicable disease or syndrome and it provides the legal basis for insisting that mandatory reporting take place and also forced quarantines for people exhibiting signs of the virus should it become necessary. Now the CD CDC also issued a travel advisory for Wuhan and it said that it had requested that Chinese health authorities allow it to send personnel to the Chinese city in order to gain a better understanding of the disease there. Now that application was made with the Chinese Centre for Disease Control and Prevention and is based on the cross strait Corporation Agreement on Medicine and Public Health Affairs which was signed in 2011. Now the CDC has yet to say whether its officials were allowed to travel to China or even got an invite but on Thursday the CDC did Announced that Chinese health authorities have identified the mysterious disease as a new type of coronavirus. Now, according to the CDC, reports in China say that the virus's primary mode of transmission is from animal to human, and there is a low possibility of human to human transmission. However, health officials here say although the new coronavirus is believed not to pose a great risk of human to human transmission, further research is still required to fully understand it. Now, inspections are still being conducted on people arriving in. Time Taiwan on flights from Wuhan and the CDC says of the 1,317 passengers and crew members who have arrived on 14 inbound flights they've been tested and of them 10 are showing signs of a, a virus they don't know whether it's that the virus or they're simply a cold or a cough and they're now subject to health monitoring by local governments here in Taiwan so Ralph memories of SARS there a
0: little bit, yeah. I uh, I saw the story. I was in Beijing during SARS and covered that story, so I remember what happened. Uh, basically, the whole world went indoors um, for weeks, months, something like that, and um, <clears throat> most of the dead people were in hospitals. It was, it was largely a hospital-to-hospital spread disease. I don't see anything like that happening in Wuhan. It looks to me like the Health authorities in China have figured out what it is, what it's not. A few people have gotten sick, and uh, I think they've all recovered. Last time I checked the story, I could have been, I could have changed by now, but um, it appears that the coronavirus is in that one city. It's a big city, but if it's not getting out, if there's not a, like, a, a, like an outbreak where it's just sort of spreading uncontrollably, then it sh- we should be okay for now.
2: Well, it certainly seems like a frightening prospect, doesn't it? But I think, again, like looking at it from a political point of view, this is one another reason why Taiwan should be allowed to fully participate in WHO and meetings and the the, the World Health Assembly as well. Um, I, you know, the, the Taiwanese government has long insisted that it's um, it's important for public security, not just in Taiwan but also in the whole region, to to allow. Um, Taiwan to fully participate and and you know hopefully um China might actually try to come around to that view um I don't I don't um hold out much faith that they will but this is yet another example and reminder of why that is important um and and I'd be interested to see how it plays out in Hong Kong as well um it presents a dilemma for the authorities there who, who have been so insistent that face masks must be banned for security purposes. So, you know, we'll have to see what they hold as um, more important, whether it's public health or or a, a kind of failed attempt to um, identify people who are who are um, promoting democracy.
1: And, of course, the government were checking flights from Wuhan. I mean, do you think this was a a knee-jerk reaction or a good move? And do you think they possibly could have checked flights from other destinations in China? Mm -hmm.
0: I wonder whether other countries are doing this. If you find that the airport, you know, the quarantine people in Tokyo and Singapore and other cities are also doing checks on flights from Wuhan, then it would appear Taiwan is acting in accordance with the good practices around the region. If Taiwan is doing it on its own um, and it might it raises a little bit of suspicion that it's political almost. It's just saying, hey, you know, China's full of problems over here. We're clean and pure and careful. So, you know, it's sort of a, a statement to the citizens to prefer where you're from instead of the other side.
1: And, of course, Nicola, it's the Lunar New Year coming up. And, of course, there's still the African swine fever issue. And, of course, there's still major checks going on on pork products being brought into Taiwan because of concern of the swine fever spreading here.
2: Yeah, that's true. But it seems that Taiwan has been doing a very good job in in keeping it out. I mean, it's been months now that that's been a threat um, and their security precautions do seem to be working. Um, Mm. Singapore as well, just going back to what Ralph was saying earlier, Singapore is also checking at the moment for for the Wuhan virus. And... and, um, it looks like there there could be a potential case in South Korea. So I think, you know, what we're going to see over the next few months is just more and more checks, which is, you know, which is also reassuring.
1: And, of course, it is Lunar New Year, Ralph, which means that the customs and the immigration people and the health people at the airport will be on bigger alert than normally.
0: I suppose, yeah. I'm going to be travelling. I'll get back to you on how long we have to sit around and do fever checks and blood with, you know, having blood drawn if you have a cough and, being admonished to wear a face mask, which is medically useless. So, um, yeah, I don't. I, uh, I guess I'll allocate another hour of my time to get in and out of the airports.
1: Right, anyway, we'll move on from the coronavirus and talk about a freeway, or rather a highway. That being the final section of the improved Suhua Highway, which connects Elan and Hualien counties, officially opened to traffic this Monday. Now, the upgraded road bypasses the most dangerous parts of the old highway, mostly through the use of tunnels, and they account for more than 60% of the new road. Now, the 38.8km improvement project has taken nine years to complete, mainly because of those tunnels, and it cuts travel time from Su Ao to Hualien to 59 minutes. And the opening of the final section of the new improved Suhua Highway also sees the first direct daily bus service between Greater Taipei and Hualien. So, Ralph, did you ever take the old Suhua Highway?
0: I have taken the train to Hualien on a number of occasions. I've even flown there twice, I think. I have never gone to Hualien by road. Um, it's frustrating. I understand that the buses will be a big asset because it's easy enough to get over to. Ilan and Suau, but once you get past that, fighting public transit can be difficult to impossible sometimes, so it's good to know that that's open. I'm sure it will bring some economic advantages to the, the coastal communities there who need to get into Hualien City or up into Yilan or up over here to Taipei.
2: Yeah, it all sounds like a, a good plan to me. I mean, one of the things, I've, I've actually never been on the old highway either, but one of the things that I found in um, going to Walian by train and also in recommending it to friends who have um, come to visit Taiwan is it is so difficult to get train tickets. Um, And if you want to expand tourism um, and encourage people to visit other parts of Taiwan, then that's, that's a problem that really needs to be addressed, just the infrastructure. How do you get there? Um, you don't necessarily want to have to fly to Hualien, you know, for environmental reasons and also just because it's so close. It is, it's just a bit crazy. So, if this highway can help to alleviate that burden on, on transport links, then that sounds great.
1: And, Ralph, do you think it actually in, in make step up tourism to Hualien? Do you think it'll make a big difference there?
0: It might. It could step up tourism for people who either live in northern Taiwan, in, in other words, domestic tourism, or people who come. Taipei first as their point of entry and want to go one or two other places that becomes open to them without so much hassle.
1: So, I do believe that the bus tickets are quite cheap.
0: I would guess they're going to be. Ooh, I should say I haven't ridden a long distance bus except to from Gaoshan to Kanding, and that's what is that almost 400 NT now. So, Wadian would be twice the distance. So,
1: are we okay. looking at 800 NT now? We're looking at 320 NT. Ah, okay. Okay, you got well you got the answer then. I should ask you. There we go. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and Transport Minister Lin Jialong says that his office is currently considering terminating Far Eastern Air Transport's civil aviation flight permit. Lin announced that the ministry has received an official report from the Civil Aeronautics Administration, which is recommending cancelling the airline's flight permit, despite a petition filed by the carrier to resume services. Now, Far Eastern Air Transport filed that petition after claiming that its December 12th decision to suspend all flights was, and I love this one, a misunderstanding. Standing among management. We'll get back to that in a minute. Anyway, the Civil Aeronautics Administration has said it decided to recommend cancelling the airline's operation permit because it violated the Civil Aviation Act. Now, that act stipulates that carriers must submit business suspension plans for approval before cancelling flights and can only suspend or terminate operations 60 days after receiving approval to do so. Now, violations of that law can result in suspension of business or revocation of permits and a fine of up to 3 million NT and losing its flight permit and a possible 3 million NT fine for FAT isn't enough, while the Taipei City Government on Wednesday of this week slapped the carrier with a 1.5 million NT fine for failing to pay its over 1,000 employees their December salaries. Now, the airline reportedly owes its employees monthly salaries and overtime fees totaling 60 million NT, and that was supposed to be paid on Monday. So, Ralph, we've talked about Far Eastern's problems before, but now they look like losing their license and being fined several times and not having any money to pay their poor employees.
0: Yeah, I think the company has had, uh, has really had, maybe it's time has just come and everybody knows that. And that's an oversimplification of the legal procedures to which you refer. But I would suspect that a a more um, macro level that the, the government authorities who are chasing the company are, have just gotten tired of it. They, they do they owe money to their employees and um, the uh, current administration Taiwan has been fairly pro labor, so that's one thing. I would imagine that the civil aviation authorities are just kind of tired of the two. They have declared bankruptcy, I think, in I wanna say two thousand seven, eight, somewhere in there. They stopped flying for quite a number of years <clears throat> in that block of time. They had a crash before that, I think in the eighties. Um, so the airline is not really, you know, making a lot of friends out there and if it's politically, legally, and uh, from a safety point of view, expedient to crack down on it, then I don't think anybody's going to stand in their way.
2: I understand the, the need to crack down um, for bad business practice. I, I I don't know how imposing a fine, however, can actually, you know, pushing the, the airline further into debt can help employees. Um, it, surely there could be some other kind of sanction Um because the, the priority, I mean, airlines are notoriously tricky businesses to run. And it seems that, that um, this one was too heavily reliant on domestic air travel. But um, surely the priority should be to, to pay the employees and to find other ways of doing that.
1: Of course apparently they've got one thousand employees might not have jobs, Ralph, and some apparently some of the pilots from Far Eastern have been demanding the government find them new jobs.
0: Hmm. That's interesting because usually pilots in Asia have a it's a it's an employees market, if you will. They can find if they're good at it, they can you normally find other work pretty handily. There are airlines in Asia that can't find enough local pilots so they end up hiring people from the West. So they shouldn't have to look too hard. Although there aren't that many picks if you want to be based here in Taiwan, compared to uh, other regional air hubs. Um, the employees, I su- the other employees, I suspect, will have a harder time finding work because um, there aren't as many airlines and service. The service industry isn't quite as competitive um, among employers as the uh, the market is for pilots.
1: And we shall leave the Far Eastern air transport saga and move on to another continuing saga, that being food delivery companies. Well, they're back in the news this week after the Taipei City Council passed a law requiring them to insure all their delivery drivers. Now, the new law is set to come into effect next month, and Taipei City Hall says it will benefit some 35,000 at food delivery company couriers. Now, the law means that the food delivery companies will have to insure their drivers all the time, even when they're not working. However, However, the companies are opposing that measure, saying that it will lead to an increase in operating costs due to concerns about multiple insurance claims. Other people, though, who advocate for the sharing economy are also questioning the move by the Taipei City government, and they argue that it could result in some businesses cutting costs by employing less drivers or making it tougher for people to get jobs as food delivery drivers, which could stymie the sector's growth. Now, the new law rather, comes after several food delivery drivers were killed in traffic accidents last year which prompted the taipei city government to review safety and workplace regulations for the food delivery sector so nicola food delivery companies now in Taipei at least they've got to have insurance for their
2: employees i think they should definitely have insurance for their employees for when they're during business hours when their their employees are um carrying out duties for that company um i think you know it's it's one of the the dilemmas about the new ways of, of, of working and who's who's responsible for what um, but if someone's doing a job on your behalf then then I, I think you need to offer them the, the minimum support and, and you know insurance in an accident would, would surely come into that category.
0: I totally agree that the company should insure all the drivers at all the times when they're delivering food and I think if the, if the drivers are contractors, I suppose the company will come around and say, well, they're responsible for themselves and all we have to do is pay them a, pay them hourly or pay them a fee for the day whatever it is. But, um, you know, I think Taiwan it, it has started in earnest to examine its long history of the right to work country where, you know, the employers kind of get to tell everybody what to do and the wages are low and the hours are merciless. Uh, maybe this is another sign that, that, um, workers are going to get a little bit more of the rights they should
1: have. Well, of course, Nicola, the sharing economy, which, of course, this is the food delivery, they're all app-based, like Uber. And people that want to have the sharing economy, you'd thought they'd be for having employees being insured, but they're, of course, saying that businesses, if they have to insure their employees, could simply cut costs by employing less drivers and making it more difficult for people to actually work for them. When the point is, I would have thought if you want to be an Uber driver or an Uber Eats driver or a food panda driver, it's an easy job.
2: Sure. I mean, you, you, but you have to... It's, it's a difficult question to answer. So you have to... We have to establish basically new rules because we're not working anymore. Um, in traditional nine to five jobs, which were, I guess, a bit easier to regulate. But we have to find Fine. solutions. I mean, you, you can't have um, people who are employed by a company and then they have a terrible accident and, uh, you know, it, it, something horrible happens and they might be um, maimed for life. You can't have them just left high and dry um, without any uh, means for recourse or for assistance. At the same time, if you make the rules far too draconian, then you will have companies just cutting corners and it's not going to be in anyone's interest. But this is the the difficult question that we need to come to terms with and we need to find some kind of midway point.
1: Ralph, do you see that happening soon or do you think that will just come a long time away in the future here in Taiwan? If the
0: companies don't want to pay the insurance, but they have to anyway, they could consider cutting back on the number of drivers. But then what happens if the demand is high? Like if you have, as far as they know, now we have two dominant food delivery services here. One cuts back and the other one doesn't. And then if the demand for food remains as high as it is, then the one with the more drivers is going to be getting more business, and the one who cuts is going to be losing business unless they catch up again. So I'm not sure if cutting back drivers makes sense in terms of supply and demand.
1: Right, and before we go this week, the Taipei City Government is set to revamp its u-bike bicycle rental system later this month basically or in the coming months with so-called u-bike 2.0 and before it upgrades the entire u-bike system a trial run will be taking place in taipei's gongguan area next wednesday or from next wednesday rather because the trial period will basically go after a few weeks and the trial period will come three months before the city considers replacing all the current u-bike bicycles with new ones now according to the city's transport department there will be 1,800 new u-bike bike bike stands installed at 102.0 Stations in the Gongguan area during the trial run, accommodating 500 new bicycles. And officials say the Gongguan area near the National Taiwan University was chosen as the site for the trial run, as it's apparently the most popular U-Bike hotspot in Taiwan. Now, currently, the bike payment system is powered by cables installed under the stations, but the new bike system will use built-in solar panels on the bicycles themselves to power the payment system, and it will also feature smart control panels on the bikes. Also. Now, City officials says hope the U-Bike 2.0 project will enable it to increase the number of bike rental stations to around 2,000 in the future in Taipei from the current 400. So new gadgets on rental bikes, Nicola? Um, Is that a good thing or a bad thing, or does it make it easier to break?
2: (laughs) Uh, I'm not very tech savvy, so I'd probably break it. Um, No, I mean, I'm not anti-gadget, but I think I think more importantly for e-bikes is that I think people are less concerned about the gadgets and, and more concerned about access to u bikes and that's been a that's been a bit of an issue over the past few weeks, um, just with these nonsensical decisions to to make it more complicated to rent the bikes. Um, firstly, for foreign residents, although that's that's been resolved, but also for for people who, who are just visiting Taiwan, um, tourists. I mean, if you if you want to boost your tourism then don't make it more difficult for tourists to access uh, U-bikes which are one of the kind of great advantages um, that Taiwan uh, Taipei has to offer in terms of you know how to get around the city how to see the sights um, and I really don't understand why um, that has been um, a bit of an oversight when it comes to planning how to, to roll out the new U-bike system
1: and Ralph will you be checking out one of the new U-bikes no, I have my own bike. But I was just thinking, on, on the
0: lines of what Nicola was saying, that if, there, if we had a like a coin-operated bicycle rental, it would encourage more people to use it. You wouldn't have to be a member of anything. You wouldn't have to have a local credit card or or Easy Card or anything like that. You just get it, put it back, um, and maybe the technology should be steered toward, um, you know, ensuring somehow that these users who pay by coin give the bike back and that they are obligated in some way to, uh, I guess you would have to register somehow so they know who you are. And if you don't give it back, then they can find you. They can find the bike. Um, So technology has its role. But like Nicholas said, I don't think it's what they're doing um, in the the Gongguan demonstration area.
1: No, it, was, it seems to me mouth that they're, adding, they're making the bicycles themselves more complicated, which seems to run in the face of common sense when you're dealing with the general public, because I would have thought making the bikes simpler as bicycles, you'd have less repairs every so often, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and the other thing, um, well, I think Giant, um, last I checked, which was a while ago, Giant is the operator of that system, and they have a way of doing repairs pretty regularly, and they're used to it, so... Then um, they they take bikes out of the fleet, repair them, put them back. So there's always something that you can use within the U-Bike system. Um, I would wonder, one of the things that's really complicated about riding in Taipei is the, the traffic. It's um, it's a pretty horrid city If you're biking up and down Roosevelt Road from, from uh, your rental station in Gongwa. Um, it's, it's just a real mess. And you can get mowed down at an intersection, you can get mowed down in the, in a... Uh, you know, in a lane for cars or you, you end up risking mowing other people down on the sidewalk. You're the big guy there. You know, other people are in front of you. It's really tough. And I don't think the foreigners know what the rules are, what they're, uh, what they're allowed to do, what they're not supposed to do, what happens if they get into a scuffle with somebody.
1: Um, I would work on that side. So, Nicola, have you ever rented a U-bike? I have not. No. you never rented a u-bike will you be renting a new u-bike or will you stick with the old u-bikes if you ever do decide to rent a bike
2: um i i don't think i will be renting a bike here either along the lines of what ralph has said i i mean actually i do have a bike here but and i love cycling but i do just find taipei's roads pretty terrifying in a car never mind on a bike you can um, cycle on the river though they have nice river parts yeah i know but it's a question of getting there, really, isn't it? But, no, sometimes we, we, we have, they've got um, those, um, they're not like bikes, but they're like those little carriages with wheels. I can't think of the word now. Um, uh, along the riverbank, sometimes we rent, and they're quite fun just oh, to the, kind of ride about. the tricycles? Uh, they're not tricycles either, because they're like, they're like little buggy things. Oh, right. But you cycle them.
1: Well, maybe they should rent them. You could use them in the city.
2: Yeah, I'd like to try that, actually.
1: Right, anyway, that's what we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thanks very much. And Ralph Jennings. Thank you, Gavin. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Mm-hmm.